You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Schiffman. On this show, I interview people with lived and learned experiences on the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy, but occasionally we talk about other subjects as well. Today's show features a conversation with author and harm reduction advocate David Podes. but first, Kid Mental, let's go. Things ain't always gonna go our way, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And some battles will be yesterday, but today is for a new weekend. Choose your struggle, and don't worry about what they say, but you can always win when you choose your struggle. And you can bounce back, just as Jay. Come on in, listen in to just struggle. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Great to be back with all of y'all. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 29th. I just got back late yesterday from Puerto Rico. Had a wonderful trip. I uh, have to thank both of the major partners for this show, Bookshop and Roadrunner uh, Bookshop, because I read multiple books on on the trip, uh, and and you know couldn't do that without Bookshop. So thank you to Bookshop, Roadrunner twice actually. First uh, <laughs> in Old San Juan, in the middle of a conversation with with Lauren, I stepped off the sidewalk, and their streets are mostly cobblestone. Uh, put my foot down between two uh, cobblestone pieces without realizing it and uh, my ankle twisted uh, for a moment. I was like, well, there goes this vacation. It was like the second day. Um, but luckily, we stopped in a, in a drugstore, grabbed a, a wrap, and I covered my ankle in Roadrunner's muscle gel, and I was good to go. I, I, I was I was fine. We, we did it the next day. We did a tour of a, co- a coffee farm, which was a lot of walking. Uh, two days after that, we, we went on a, a long hike through the mountain mountainous rainforest uh, to a to a swimming hole. More on that in a second. Uh, and I was good to go. I, I really could not have done this without Roadrunner's muscle gel. So really, sincerely, thank you to Roadrunner. Uh, as always, if you want to support either one of those partners, go to the link in the show notes. And uh, if you want to get something from Roadrunner, use the code CYS at checkout. You'll get 10% off. So um, thank you to both of those. Oh, the other Roadrunner uh, instance. When we got to this this uh, swimming hole, which was a basin underneath a waterfall, it was pretty beautiful, pretty spectacular. You could look out over a lot of Puerto Rico all the way to the ocean. It was really beautiful. Uh, I had brought a couple of uh, pre-rolled um Roadrunner joints with me. So had some CBD, uh, some pretty great pictures on my Instagram. If you're not following Instagram, just go search for Choose Your Struggle or Jay Schiffman on on any social media. But uh, there's a picture of me in this swimming hole uh, (laughs) with a joint. And and I look very, very content because I was. So uh, again, thank you to Roadrunner. Uh, now, today's episode is with a guy that I am just such a fan of. Uh, he's he's a really nice guy, really smart guy. Um, it was one of those things where I've been following his work for a while, uh, thanks to, actually, big shout out to ML Lanzalotta, uh, who you all know and love, uh, because he was the one that first turned me on to today's guest, David Posis. So uh, check out David on Twitter. That's that's my first recommendation. Uh, really intelligent guy. Really interesting the way that he thinks about and promotes harm reduction. You know, safe drug use, that kind of thing. Uh, but more important than anything is grab his book. The way to Vare is, in, and I've said this on on a shows before. I've said this on, when I was interviewed. I've said this on social media. The Weight of Air is, in my opinion, probably the best drug book that I've read this year. And that says something, you know. I mean, uh, I read a lot of these. I, I'm, I'm looking at my list, not just of of drug books, but but of books, period. You know, and, and, and drug books are probably a third of that list, and, and this would be my pick so far of, of the best of the year. So um, really big shout out to David. As always, um, he shouts us out on the show. If you want a copy, he is happy to to help facilitate that. He was very nice in sending me one. And so as I always do when I interview an author, if you would like a copy um, free of charge, <laughs> sorry, David, uh, although he he does promote also, you know, hey, do, do whatever you got to do to get the book. So uh, I will send you mine. 
All you have to do is reach out to me through the website, jshiffman.com, and tell me that you uh, liked uh, this interview and that you want to read the book, and I will send it to you. Uh, if you want to support David, obviously go to Bookshop. You can get the, the book there, or uh, he tells you a couple other places, um, and, and, and please do so because he is he is such a great guy and such a smart guy and, and uh, is really doing fantastic work around the issues of drug use and substance misuse. So um, grab the book. It is wonderful. It's not an easy read. Um, there are parts of it where it is, it is you know, as I say on the interview, if I was not interviewing him and, and instead was just reading about this person or this character, I would believe that it did not end well. So, you know, that is the warning. It is tough at times, uh, but 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 enjoy this book. Uh, and, and most importantly, I guess, enjoy this incredible conversation with the always insightful David Poses. In June of 2021, I accomplished something that is all too rare for those with lived experience. I told my story and made my call for change from a TED stage. The fact is, our society puts too much emphasis on those with learned experience. You know, the person who spent 20 years researching something. And that's okay, because those voices are incredibly important. They provide the information that the rest of us run with. But we can't minimize the voice of those who've actually lived these experiences. That person doing research can't tell you what it really feels like to go through withdrawals, and they shouldn't want to. We need all voices at these tables. So if you're looking for someone who actually has lived these experiences, who can talk about struggling with mental health and substance misuse, who can talk about what it really feels like to go through addiction, who can speak eloquently about the war on drugs from both a learned and lived experience, reach out to me. And if you're looking to create a more complete experience, a roundtable or a whole cadre of speakers, I can bring numerous people with me who have experiences that are unlike mine and unlike anything else that you've heard. So reach out to me today and let's create a complete learning experience for your office, your club, your school, or anywhere else, because these voices need to be heard and these lessons can create change today. Reach out and let's all choose our struggle. Find me on social media. Check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman, on YouTube and LinkedIn, and choose your struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hi, I'm David Poses. I'm a writer and activist and a, a husband and father and the author of The Weight of Air. And uh, for my listeners, y'all probably know that name. I've mentioned his book a couple of times now, both on, on social media and on the show. Uh, it is, I, as David, as you know, because I've, I, uh, when I finished it, I sort of was, was nagging you a lot about how much I enjoyed it. It is mm -hmm. one of my favorite books of this year. And probably if I had to, to choose in my top two uh, drug books, and I've read a lot this year. So um, it wow. is one that I definitely Thank recommend you. everybody reads. And as I always do when I have an author on the show, when I have the book, uh, I give away a copy of the, the book at the end, my copy. And, and so anybody who wants one, uh, you know, reach out and the first person will get my copy of the book. So uh, before we really get into that, though, the book itself, you know, this this is uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but a very uh, vulnerable, open look into your life as drug, a drug user and uh, somebody who struggled with misuse and addiction. Yes, uh, definitely. Now, so then the question, I guess, before we really get into that, uh, the story, because the story is incredible. Uh, was this difficult to write? Because I couldn't quite tell from reading it. There were moments where it seemed like you almost, uh, this was therapeutic for you to, to write this story. Mm -hmm. um, is that accurate? Or was I sort of reading into that a little bit? No, um, it's, it's definitely accurate. You know, I had kept all of this a secret um, from when I was, you know, 19 years old. I mean, my, my, Family was aware that I um, spent some time in, in rehab and my story was anywhere from six months to like a year and a half, even though it was three years on heroin. And then after that, uh, it went on for another 16 years, but nobody knew. And then 10 years of buprenorphine, like I, nobody had any idea about any of this um, until I was 42. And I thought I, I wanted to tell my wife um, and I, I knew that she would be, you know, I was hoping that she would be sensitive um, and understanding, but I still felt so guilty for, you know, deceiving her. So the idea was I'm going to write this book 
and I'm going to give it to her as a, this is what's up, <laughs> you know, basically um, in, a, in a much more sensitive way. Um, and so she was just unbelievably um, incredible about it. And it just kind of went from there. I will say, I appreciate that. That was the most fascinating part to me was it was sort of a big reveal at the end of like, you were literally revealing your story to her. And it was, it was very, yeah. very beautiful in that way, as you talked about sort of uh, briefly at the end, uh, how you did that. And, and as somebody in recovery, I just can't, I, I cannot fathom you keeping the depths that you went to, as you, as you say in this book, a secret and also how you were able, let alone physically doing that, but how you were mentally able to keep this all a secret. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's, I think the thing about it that uh, confuses a lot of people or, you know, we, there's this myth that like you can't possibly be on heroin and, and function. You know, I see that from a mile away, but the fact is like there's millions of people all over the world who are prescribed opioids much stronger than heroin. And we know that they not only can function on them, but they need them specifically to function. So hiding it was never a problem for me. It's not like it smells, you know, like you, you drink or smoke, everybody knows. And I was better on the heroin. So if anybody was going to think like, what's wrong with this guy, it would have been when I was sober um, because I, I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, and that was the problem. I didn't want to, I hated the lifestyle, but I, I couldn't function. Um, you know, without it. And, and mentally it was excruciating because I felt such overwhelming guilt and, and self-hatred for um, what I was doing for, for, you know, needing some foreign substance to function. So I just hated myself the whole time. But if I wasn't on heroin, then I hated myself for entirely different reasons. And like, I was suicidal. So, um, you know, it really, it, it, it felt like heroin or suicide for a very long time. And, you know, I think I made the right choice. <laughs> I would say that you made the right choice. I, I, I would, I, I also, I think that the, the, the hiding part that was so fascinating to me was more the lengths you were going to, to, to acquire the heroin. Right. And of course, and as I mentioned before we started recording that we'll talk about, you know, policy stuff towards the, the, the second half of the show, but some of those stories were, you know, took me back to, wow, you know, that there were people, obviously I was around who were doing a lot of similar things, but man, the lengths you were going to, to, to get your supply was, was pretty absurd at times. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, you know, the other thing that I found kind of funny at the time, like, uh, you know, I, I had this job in advertising um, and I used to like shoot up in the bathroom at work all the time. And I came, I walked into a meeting one day, like right after I had shot up and I was wearing this white shirt um, and there was blood collecting in my elbow uh, on the inside of my shirt. And, you know, I didn't see it. And somebody asked what it was. And like, you know, without missing a beat, I said, um, oh, I just shot up in the bathroom and everybody laughed. Uh, and then when I made up something about, you know, a doctor's appointment and taking blood or whatever, you know, nobody, nobody questioned it. So, you know, I think, um, and, and that was, I wasn't amused by that at the time. Like I felt, I felt terrible about it. Um, but I, I, I wonder if I wanted to get caught perhaps, um, because my system of acquiring the heroin, which I hadn't even thought about until somebody pointed it out to me recently that I always put a middleman between myself and the dope. You know, so like I couldn't go to, I mean, obviously there were exceptions and certainly in the beginning of my um, career as a, as a heroin addict, but, um, you know, I, I, I needed some kind of insulation, I guess. Um, well, and let's talk about that, the beginning a little bit, you know, on, on, uh, not only do we not have time to cover the whole story, but I don't want to, because I want people to read the book, but you started sort of uh, your introduction to the party scene was, I think most teenagers would agree, pretty cool. I mean, you were you were sort of having a good time. Talk a little bit about that because that was fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, a friend, uh, a very close friend who, who I turned out was um, on heroin, uh, took me to a limelight in New York City, which used to be a, a you know, pretty serious nightclub. Um, and I met uh, all of the club kids and Michael Alec, who was in charge of the club kids, and, and we got along really well. Um, he hired me to be a promoter 
for Limelight USA and Tunnel, um, Peter Gation's clubs. And so, you know, from the, like at 16, I was, um, I was having these massive parties and everybody wanted to be on my guest list and nobody had any idea that I was on drugs. I mean, like I got made fun of at high school parties for not drinking, um, you know, so like the impression that different people had of me was just so hard um, to balance and, and really just kind of crazy. But I mean, those nightclubs in the nineties were really, really happening. Um, and, you know, there, there's just nothing like them today. Uh, and, and the people were just, I mean, there's so many amazing people and I'm still in touch with, uh, you know, some of them today. And I, and I think there is a, 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 a too quick assumption to, that people would jump to if they don't know your story to be like, Oh, he was a club kid. Of course he, but, but that really, that, that connection wasn't your story. I mean, it wasn't that because no. you were a club kid, you started, I mean, you were no. very clear about this in the book, which I loved that for you, heroin was filling a hole. It was making you yeah. feel better in a way that nothing else did. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to the clubs through Rob because Rob was the, source for heroin like if rob was on a bowling team i would have gone bowling instead of going to the clubs <laughs> it so happened that i liked them um you know but uh it, it was definitely not a like oh the the club kids got him to, i mean none of the club kids were on heroin at the time and i you know i think that's a really important distinction because in my you know slice of suburbia getting heroin was like trying to find you know weapons grade plutonium at the time <laughs> um and you know everything else was around my, my friends were using you know uh, pot and alcohol. I mean, you know, as, as garnishes for activities and Rob, I had to, you know, and you could get anything people were offering, you know, you want to take some acid, like all over the place, heroin. I had to beg Rob for my first hit. It took like months of convincing him, um, until I told him like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump off a roof if you don't do this. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the, the club kids were also against heroin at the time. I mean, they would do, you know, everything else, but there was this notion that like, you know, junkies are, you know, bad people. And um, I mean, a lot of the stereotypes. Um, so, but, but then, you know, Michael, um, we, uh, we, we introduced him to uh, heroin. And um, I mean, it was, it, it was really sad to watch what happened to him. I mean, I visited him in jail throughout um when he was there. And then when he got out, I mean, I, I talked to him just a few months before he died and I had to put a, um, you know, a wall between us because I knew that he was on heroin again. And, and I mean, you know, he's, I have one friend left from my heroin using days, um, Rob and Michael was the, the, you know, the last one other than Rob, he died on Christmas last year. And, and it was, I, you know, it, it was awful. Well, I'm very sorry for your loss. And that's sort of one of those things that a lot of people like us in this world that are, are pushing for more common sense uh, and safe drug policy do have to balance our own experiences with losing people close to us and knowing how different it could be in a, in a better environment in a, in a safer environment. And, and for you, you know, there were times in your book where I don't, uh, it almost sounded to me like if you hadn't had made it, if you weren't the one writing this, if someone else were writing your story, I would have believed that, that, that you would not have come out. There were some moments where it sounded like this may not end well. Uh, you were, <laughs> right. you were lucky that you Sorry. always, that you, you had the self-awareness to, to recognize this at times, but also had, you know, the, the opportunities, both mostly bad, but eventually good as well to get some, a little bit of help. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think at the time I thought I was being so careful. I mean, I had, I had an access to clean needles, so that wasn't a problem, but I didn't know, I, I hadn't thought about the idea that, you know, like I, if I, if my tolerance was like, I shoot a bag of dope in the morning, um, that was that. I didn't think about the fact that like, if I got uh, one bag from this guy and one bag from that guy, sure. I mean, I had a consistent, you know, source, but anytime I switched, like the problem today is that the same as then not knowing what's actually in the bag. So the potency difference, if I had gotten a bag that was 10 times more potent than the last, I would be dead right now. And I didn't even think about that at the time. I thought like, oh, I'm being so careful. I'm, I'm only shooting, you know, I'm shooting a bag of dope. 
So the lack of excess and my awareness of that, like I wasn't partying. I mean, I was just trying to feel good. Um, so of course, how could I possibly die because uh, you know I'm, 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 I'm being so smart about this. But um, you have no idea. I mean, you know, it's like drinking a glass of, uh, you know, there's two pint glasses on the table and one has methanol and the other has hard seltzer and you don't know which is which, you're fucked. I mean, right. you don't have a chance. And, and that's the difference. And I'm sorry, we're going to talk about policy later. <laughs> no, no, I love it. And, and I, I, like I said, I definitely have questions because you, you studied this even more than I have. But, uh, you know, staying on your story for a second, you were... Uh, not jumping from dealer to dealer a lot. Again, that's kind of going back to what I was alluding before and, and people got to read the book about this, but uh, you're, you're uh, like you said, you were setting up, you know, middlemen between yourself, but you were trying to stay with the same dealer as much as, as, much as possible. Uh, and that always, that didn't always go well. I'm thinking mostly when you were up in, uh, in, in Massachusetts, right? That's where uh, you were, you were using this, the, you were living there with yeah. your then girlfriend and uh, tell that story real quick of the dealer that you had up in Massachusetts. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I, I had a couple of, uh, sources. One, the, the first one was this goth girl who was, um, homeless and we would drive to Holyoke, uh, whenever. And she, you know, was a, a very sweet girl. She happened to be homeless. Um, she really, you know, cared about me and, and called me out on my bullshit. Um, the second guy, uh, was Henry who lived in a boarding house. He was like a, an older, you know, kind of the a very blue collar, um, you know, guy who I, I felt like he didn't even know my name, but we were together all the time. And then Roy um, was also homeless. He was Ariane's boyfriend. And I mean, he was just like this anti-Semitic, uh, complete fucking douchebag. Um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, so that was not great. <laughs> I mean, he didn't know that, but, you know, he would make these comments like all the time. And he was just you know, such a scumbag. And he ultimately, um, I was going to go back to school. I, I won't ruin it. Never mind. <laughs> read the book. <laughs> yes, read the book. Uh, but, but going back a little bit, I think what's so fascinating about that period of your, of your life is you are telling everybody and you have everyone convinced that you are in recovery, that that you yes. are, uh, you know, you spent some time in, uh, it was Betty Ford, right? Up in, up in Hazelden, yeah. Hazelden. I was in uh, recovery, you know, I mean, yeah. Well, so that's where I'm going with this. I appreciate that you, you got yeah. that, that, that you were, you were, it's not that you weren't also using and also struggling in a way, but you were in a better place. So, so talk through kind yes. of your experience about how, uh, I don't want to say harmful Hazelden was that that's my word. It sounds like, but not no, yours. it's harmful. It was, it well, was then very let's, let's, you go, let's go with harmful then. That's great. So, so talk a little bit about sort of that experience being there, because I think not for listeners of this show, obviously this people here know that harm reduction and all that, but if someone's not familiar, they would think that Hazelden was a good place for you to go. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, addiction is such a reactive thing. My parents, I told my parents and you know, we look into colleges four years in advance, but we don't look into rehab. Nobody plans for that kind of stuff. So right. you call who you know, they say this is the best place. You send your kid there. And so, you know, my parents, I think like most parents, um, don't ask why you're using heroin. They go, you got to stop doing this. You're going to die. This is terrible. They're too outraged and scared to say like, what are you actually trying to accomplish with this crap? Um, and I was too ashamed of the heroin to tell them why I started using uh, because I was, you know, suicidally depressed and I was too ashamed of that to tell them anyway. So I get to rehab and uh, from the minute I walked in the door, they're like, you have a disease and the only way that you're gonna achieve remission is by putting your life and will in God's hands and, and working the steps of this you know, anonymous support group that uh, wants you to not be ashamed even though an anonymous support group basically screams, you should be very fucking ashamed. <laughs> um, and I just, I, I couldn't reconcile anything they were saying. And I told my counselor, I, it took all of my energy to tell him, you know, look, addiction is not my problem. It's a symptom of depression. Um, I would not need heroin if I was happy and functional. And he's just going like, you're making excuses. Heroin has absolutely no medicinal value. Um, this is addict mentality and rationalizing is, you know, whatever. And it's like, look, my rationale was rational. And that's why I'm rationalizing, you know? Um, you just don't like it. But so he said, depression is an excuse, um, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and addiction is the problem. And, and he told my mom that 
it's worth mentioning that um, I had smoked pot a handful of times. I got drunk once when I was 15. That's the only time I've been drunk in my life. So I'm not a person who uh, you know goes out and does a whole bunch of stuff. I've never tried a hallucinogen. These guys knew that. Um, so he told my mom that I am cross addicted and that she needs to get all of the booze and hand sanitizer out of the house because I'm gonna be desperate enough for a high that I will abuse anything. And I'm like, I, I'm not, I didn't have a prescription, but I was using heroin for its intended purpose. I was killing pain. I'm in pain. Um, you know, opiate receptors uh, regulate physical pain and emotional well-being. My emotional well-being was fucked up. Opioids flood your brain with dopamine and serotonin, and that's how the shit works. It, they don't, you know, heroin doesn't know if I'm in physical pain or emotional pain or, uh, you know, whatever. So, so that derailed me in such a significant way that I didn't even realize at the time. But by telling my mom these things that were completely fucking insane. You know, like if he's depressed, that's the sign that he's on heroin. So, you know, which is the exact opposite. Um, I mean, it's like saying, you know, he's congested because <clears throat> he's using decongestants. Uh, so get him off those, you know, things. And, um, and so being completely invalidated, I thought like, oh my God, maybe I am a drug addict. Um, you know, and, and when they talk about all the the lying and the steps. It's like, I was ashamed. That's why I lied. I don't lie about other stuff. I lied about drugs because I'm not going to tell somebody, hey, I break the law every day and use this stuff called heroin that you think is terrible. Um, and so, you know, I feel like if that part was acknowledged by anyone at any point in time, and I've had this conversation with my mom, you know, we, we, there's this automatic assumption of like, they're on drugs, they're lying, you know, don't believe anything that they're saying. And so there was no outlet for me to get the kind of help that I needed. And all I knew was heroin. I mean, I'd been in therapy since I was five, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I could trust any therapist. I mean, the one, the one shrink who I, I had told about the heroin was just like, you're a fucking asshole. And, you know, so wh why am I going to do that? Um, I mean, it's really, it, it's just so sad that we, that we refuse to acknowledge what's actually going on. And then when you start using again, is it fair to say that because of that experience, you fought or, or you, you worked even harder to hide your use from other people? Yes, I think it's very fair to say that. I mean, you know, I try, I cobbled together stretches of sobriety. I mean, you know, I say it went on for until I was 32, but I wasn't on heroin the whole time. Um, I mean, I was off heroin much more than I was on it. Um, you know, throughout that time. And it was, it was really, I, I saw it as the same as, you know, you've got chronic back pain and you have a flare up. So you need your pain killers. Um, and that's really what it was. I had no way, I had no tools. There was nothing I could do about it. That was, that was all I knew. And I, I hated myself for it. Now, obviously, we, we want everyone to go out and buy the book. So we'll skip over lots of stuff in here. We'll make this story a little well, we bit shorter. We want them to read the book. I don't, you know, steal it if they want to. I, I don't. Yeah, this is sure. A.B. Hoffman, go steal this book. Um, That's fine. I'll send you a copy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but you eventually enter another stage of recovery. Because as we said earlier, you had already entered sort of one um, when you decided that uh, well, I'll let you tell it. What what really finally yeah. made you realize you didn't want to use anymore? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when I I, I thought about this after I said I, I was recovering, that I, I hadn't actually begun to recover. My point was like I was, you know, trying to heal myself. Sure. Um, what happened was, um, I don't want to give away a surprise, but um, <laughs> I have kids. You'd probably, maybe you'd know that if you, you know, looked me up before or read the back of the book. But um so when my daughter was born, I had been sober for mm, a few months at that point. Um, and that was like my last major, you know, relapse. And I, I thought when the, the minute I met her, I was just like, there's no fucking way I'm, I'm using drugs again. I'm just not. And I, I felt it in my bones. But the problem is wanting something doesn't, you can't will that kind of shit to happen. In, in spite of, you know, what, what AA might tell you, um, God was not going to, I had pissed him off so much anyway. So like God, God was like, fuck you. Um, you know, you never played backgammon with me. Um, <laughs> so, so Ruby was born and, uh, and I, I started to feel when she was like a year old, um, I, I just fell into this black hole of depression. 
And I knew what I needed, but I didn't want to, you know, open that door again. Um, and when I did, it was very short-lived and, and horrifying enough to know that I needed to do something about it. And, you know, the whole time after Hazelden, that, that entire period, I thought about methadone all the time, but I couldn't go to a clinic every day because nobody knew about any of this stuff. So that was not even an option. Um, I knew about buprenorphine before I even tried heroin because Rob uh, was participated in, in clinical trials in New York City before buprenorphine was even you know, available. Um, so I ran into him at some point, like shortly after this relapse, and he was like, I told you to get on buprenorphine you know, 25 years ago um, or however long ago it was. And uh, I didn't, I knew that it was, I, I thought it was only for withdrawal. I didn't realize that it was also a maintenance drug. Um, and so I, I called, um, you know, every buprenorphine doctor around and, you know, nobody wants to see you if you, nobody can see you if you, uh, if your pee is clean, if there's no drugs in your system. And I just, I, I begged the last guy, like, you know, look, I, if I have to go out and score in order to see you, I'm not coming to see you and I'm going to fucking die and you don't want my, my blood on your hands. So, um, so that happened. And, and when the first uh, tablets, you know, dissolved under my tongue and however long it took for it to, you know, kick in, I knew like in a split second that I, I found the solution. It was, it was as obvious as heroin um, from the first hit, that feeling of like, this is what you need. Um, so, you know, there was no doubt in my mind that, that that was the answer. And I think the thing is, for me, like feeling like I'm, you know, thrashing around in the middle of the ocean and I'm, and I'm drowning and I'm singularly focused on not drowning, um, the buprenorphine was like a lifeboat. And that really changed the entire focus and trajectory of my life. Like I, I was, you know, no longer, you know, struggling to survive. I was able to live. So I, I started seeing a therapist um, again. And, you know, that's really when, when I started to recover. And also, you know, at Hazelden, they used sobriety and recovery. So it was, they were interchangeable. Sobriety is the answer. And what's so fucked up about that is like, if, you know, Addiction, the medical, physical condition of I'm using all this heroin. If I stop, I'm going to get sick. I stop. I go through the misery of withdrawal. You know, a couple of weeks later, a few days later, however long it takes for you to, you know, have some semblance of, of normalcy, you're no longer addicted to heroin, right? So your sobriety cured your addiction, but the compulsion to use heroin doesn't go away because you're sober. And there are all these studies about the, the um, you know, your neurotransmitters and the, and the plasticity of how everything is wired in your brain and, and very significant dysfunctional activity being deserved, uh, observed after, you know, very long periods of abstinence. And so, you know, I, I knew that, um, that I wouldn't have been able to unpack the emotional baggage that led to the compulsion to use drugs without buprenorphine. So, I mean, I really could give less than a fractional fuck if it invalidates my sobriety, because that's not, you know, I mean, like, if you think about it, everybody says, oh, sobriety is the answer, sobriety, you know, sobriety is the end all be all. And it's like, if your um, compulsive drug use is a mental health disorder, right? So if you're one of those people who like, um, you know, I have to like turn the key a thousand times or else my cat's gonna die kind of people, not turning the key, you're abstinent, but you still wanna turn the key. You still think your cat's gonna die. Like all of those, th those thoughts don't go away because you're sober. So like sobriety is hard because it's not the fucking answer. And I just, I don't understand all of this bravado of like I'm white knuckling it and you need to, you know, whatever. It's like, fuck that. I, I haven't suffered as much as other people but like I only have my own perspective and if I can choose to not suffer, I'm gonna choose that 100% of the time. And for a very long time, I was ashamed of that. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm not anymore. And I don't, I don't know how that, happened or why I'm certainly grateful for it, but, um, you know, I couldn't have written this book until I felt that way. And when I, when I talk to people and they're like, Oh my God, you're so brave and courageous. I, it is the exact opposite of bravery and courage. I hit all of this stuff. I, I covered it up. I lied about it. I deceived everybody I know for, you know, more than 20 years. Everybody in my life thought I was 24 years sober when I told them what was actually going on. I mean, like, that's not courageous. Um, 
so, you know, the, the guilt and shame were just so overwhelming also, like I, I had to do something. So. So then before we really get into talking about uh, drug policy and all that kind of stuff that you touched on there, let's pause real quick. If you wouldn't mind shouting out where people can follow you online, where they can buy the book, all that kind of good stuff. Okay. Um, you can buy the book at any bookstore or Amazon. You can get signed copies at splitrockbooks.com. It's my local bookstore. I would feel better about you buying it from them than giving Jeff Bezos more money. Um, Twitter, I'm on Twitter all the time. I try to be on Instagram more often. I could definitely use more Instagram friends. So, you know, that would be great. Um, I'm, my website is davidposes.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm david.poses and davidposes.author. Um, I've written a bunch of articles and have other stuff going on that's on my website. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. The Choose Your Struggle podcast has been so lucky to have numerous truly change-making authors on this show. From Adi Jaffe to Emily Dufton, we have been blessed by hearing them speak, and now it's time to grab their works. Now, you could go to Amazon if you wanted to shop online, but let's be honest, that's not the right choice. So I'm going to invite you to head over to my partner, Bookshop. If you go to bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, again, that's bookshop.org slash shop slash CYS, you're going to find all of your favorite books and you're going to support the podcast in the process. But that's not even the best part. Bookshop has an incredible program that allows you to select your favorite mom and pop or neighborhood bookstore and they will give them some of the proceeds from your order. Now, living here in Philly, that's been a really hard choice because we have fantastic bookstores all over, but I selected Harriet's, which is a truly wonderful black-owned bookstore in Northern Philly. I love it, my wife loves it, we go there as much as we can. Honestly, why would you go anywhere else? So again, go check out Bookshop at bookshop.org shop CYS. You're gonna find the book you're looking for, you're gonna support your neighborhood bookstore, and you're gonna support the podcast in the process. So check it out today and go ahead and buy that book you've been waiting for. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So I appreciate that you touched on the buprenorphine piece because a lot of people that's still new to some people who are not as familiar with this, this scene. Uh, and, and you sort of, uh, you, you touched on that you had a friend who really was sort of hip to the game before it was, it was, you know, really uh, taken off uh, for, for those who aren't as aware, you know, talk a little bit about when did buprenorphine really come on the scene and, 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 you know, talk about being one of the early adopters, so to say. Um. Yeah, buprenorphine. Um, I believe it was available a little bit before the the um, Drug Act of two thousand. Um, and the idea, I mean, you know, buprenorphine had existed since nineteen sixty nine, um, but in order to be uh, sold in the United States, our lawmakers said it, it it had to be completely abuse proof because these fucking junkies are all a bunch of lying, you know, degenerates. So. Um, so they added the Narcan, which doesn't actually uh, affect you if uh, unless you shoot it. Um, so anyway, um, so the, the the drug act that passed mandated that doctors have um, an X waiver in order to prescribe it, and uh, they can only treat 125 patients at a time. So buprenorphine, a partial agonist, um, which means it's nowhere. You know, people say, oh, it's just as bad as heroin. I mean, you know, ask for buprenorphine after your next fucking hip replacement surgery and let me know how that goes. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, you know, every doctor can prescribe any opioid. Um, they can prescribe fentanyl. They can prescribe lethal amounts of fentanyl, pharmaceutical fentanyl, um, if they want to, but 7% of doctors, uh, until very recent change, um, had the X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. So, so the drugs that, you know, it's, it's mind boggling to me that the antidote is less accessible than the problem. Um, and so, uh, so recently when 
Uh, I think by, yeah, Biden changed the rules so that any physician can prescribe buprenorphine to 10 patients, which sounds like a really good idea until you think about the fact that like doctors specialize in things. So I'm going to knock on some plastic surgeon's door and go, hey, you can prescribe buprenorphine, give it to me. You know, who knows if he wants to? Probably not, or she wants to. But either way, that doesn't make them qualified to, you know, treat you. It just means they can write the prescription. And for some people, that's that's enough. But I mean, you, you hear some very fucked up things that go on out in the world. I mean, buprenorphine is great because you can get it from your pharmacy um, in 30-day supply, unlike a methadone clinic, which doesn't trust you and, and all like that. And I'm hearing from so many people who went to a buprenorphine clinic that made them come in every day to get their dose, which is just completely fucking insane. I mean, you know, we want to get you, we want your life to get back to normal. Um, yeah, that's, that's really normal. Um, and so, you know, tons of people are buying diverted buprenorphine, um, you know, in the, uh, illicitly, and that's actually totally fine because it's counterfeit proof. Um, the packaging that each individual film comes in, nobody is going to replicate that. It would cost a fucking fortune. Um, and even if they did, who's buying buprenorphine to get high? Like you can buy, we have fentanyl and we've spent billions of dollars to replicate this uh, fake packaging of buprenorphine that nobody is going to care about if we have, you know, the other drugs. Um, I mean, there, there, obviously there are some people who are, you know, so basically, so anybody who's using it is using it for um, its intended purpose, whether they're getting it illegally or not. And it's like, you know, I always have extra buprenorphine and I, I think it's horrifying that like if you needed buprenorphine right now and you couldn't get it, which is very likely because I'm very lucky, which is lucky, which is very fucked up that I should even be lucky enough to get something um, when there's a national health emergency of, of overdose. Um, if I give it to you, then I'm committing a crime. Um, and so are you. And so I, I will have hopefully saved you from overdosing on fentanyl because that's all that's out there right now. So by, by saving your life, and hopefully turning you on to the path to recovery, um, I get uh, arrested and, and go to jail. And so do you, which and, is. And, and this is crazy. all dated in very uh, sort of absurdist uh, thinking around drug use and drug policy. You know, using your example from before, you're talking about the, the 10 patient uh, limit. If you, if you went to that same, uh, you know, plastic surgeon and said you can only treat 10 patients or, or yeah. any, any doctor who's, and you said you can only prescribe 10 people opioids this month, we would have yeah. doctors rightfully so saying, I can't do business this way. And yet, if you want to treat people for those opioids, uh, you can only treat 10. Now, one way that, that uh, some people have suggested, including you, and, then I, and I know that uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, David is very active on social media. In fact, uh, so the reason I have this question is that I saw somebody share a post of yours just this morning, uh, and I said, ha, huh, funny Ooh. coincidence. Uh, I'm, I'm interviewing today. Her name is Destiny. Shout out to Destiny, friend of the show. And she runs, she's the new director of uh, harm reduction here in Philadelphia, where I live. Uh, she oh. asked me to ask you if you wouldn't mind talking about, she said, I completely agree with him on the, on the topic of safe supply. But in David's yeah. eyes, how would that work in our country? And do you think it's, it's actually realistic to expect that will ever happen here? Um, that's a really... Easy and impossible question. <laughs> um, I couldn't do what I do if I thought it wasn't possible, but I struggle with feelings of this is never going to happen often um, because of how fucked up our system is. When, when you ask the question of like, how would it work? Um, my answer is always very, very simple. We have liquor stores, take that model, stick drugs in them. Um, don't sell it to underage people. It's the same thing. Um, and, and people are like, what, you know, I mean, a lot of people say like you would have doctors prescribe heroin in these clinics and all this bullshit. It's like alcohol is the most dangerous substance you can put in your body. It will shut down all of your organs. Um, it, it obviously can kill you by overdose. It, we think alcohol is safer. We think alcohol is legal because it's safer, but the inverse is true. Alcohol is safer because it's legal during prohibition. Um, overdose fatalities were through the roof for the reason, uh, you know, we talked about before with the, with the pint of methanol and the pint of, um, 
you know, beer. And so nobody really wants to think about that. We have this idea that, that drugs are just terrible for you. I mean, you know, look, heroin withdrawal is brutal. Alcohol withdrawal can fucking kill you, like literally kill you in a few different ways. So alcohol can, and, and all other drugs combined can't shut down the organs that alcohol can. No other drug is that addictive. I mean, the entire category of stimulants doesn't have a physical addiction, which I know doesn't you know, make it easier to stop using, but you know, there's a difference between, you're, you're not gonna die of a fucking heart attack or a stroke because you stopped smoking crack. You will from alcohol or you can. So putting heroin in stores, like people are dying not because they're going up to their local drug dealer and saying, hey, please sell me the deadliest shit you have. Don't tell me how strong it is. You know, it's, it's the unknown potency is the danger. Heroin all by itself, all, all of these opioids, I mean, look, they've been, in, they've been in use longer than written language. Overdose fatalities have been um, increasing since 1971. So in like elementary school, I learned how to separate the variables and, and the constants to figure out what the problem is. So you got before written language, consistent use of opioids, 1971, the drug war started. Um, you know, I mean, we're spending 38 trillion. I mean, the, the, the fucking DEA, they're out there. They're, they can't stop the, the toxic drugs that are going to kill, that are killing people. They can't get rid of that stuff. They can. And so they're killing people that way. They're killing people by stopping you from getting buprenorphine, methadone, all kinds of people who have prescription opioids that these restrictions are putting them in so much pain that they're, that they're committing suicide. I mean, it's unfathomable to me that these motherfuckers are burning $46 billion or, or their, their cash burn is crazy. If we, if we were to um, make all drugs legal and tax them and sell them like alcohol, it would, be, it would turn the DEA's cash burn into a positive net swing of $106 billion a year. I mean, you know, we can get a lot of treatment for that. People who want to use drugs are going to use drugs. I mean, you know, like alcohol, people get into bar fights, people drive into trees, all kinds of bad shit happens with alcohol. We're seeing what happens with, with pot right now. I mean, I think anybody who smoked pot knows that you don't get into a bar fight when you're on pot. And all of these bullshit rumors about like crime um, and people are violent and all that stuff. Like, yeah, people are, I mean, you know, th there are definitely... Um, you know, you know people who, who snort a bunch of cocaine and then they get a little, uh, you know, more, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to say violent, but you know, you, it, it, it brings out, a, every drug affects us differently. And we know that and we learn that in elementary school in drug prevention assemblies. And yet we grow up and we hear a drug is a drug is a drug. They're all the same thing. They're all bad. It's all recreational. And that really invalidates the reason that people use drugs. And I did that too. I mean, for years I went around saying like, oh, heroin, it's pure evil and it steals your soul. And it's like, every time I said that, I invalidated my fucking reason for using it. Because if that was true, what am I, a moron? Like, why am I doing something that's gonna, uh, you know, um, sabotage my soul and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it's this profound misunderstanding and misinformation and people, I mean, you know, my mom, I think, is more aware of what's actually going on um, than, you know, your average person. But it's very hard to have these conversations with her because the minute um, drugs come up, she just kind of loses her mind. And I think that happens to a lot of people. Like a couple of years ago, she said, um, I really wish that you could have just found a good antidepressant, you know, because I, I tried all these antidepressants and I'm one of the 49% of depressed people who are unresponsive to antidepressants. And I said, I did. And she was like, well, then what happened? Did you not take it every day? Because I would have called you every day and reminded you. I said, no, that, that wasn't it. And she said, well, I don't understand why you wouldn't be taking if, if you found something that works, like you're out of your mind not to take it. What's the problem? And like, you know, I mean, um, it's heroin. And she's going like, that's not, you know, she's like outraged and mad. And it's like, I, I said to her, you know, the, I, I didn't have like nothing. I didn't go to jail. Like nothing, you know, bad happened. And you know that you were unaware the whole time that I was on it. So if heroin was spelled and pronounced the same as Prozac, this wouldn't be an issue for you. You, you don't have a problem with heroin. You have a problem with the way it's spelled. And, and the, the stigma around it, the stigma around, yeah. you know, some drugs and others. Yes, it, it is all absurd. So, so the, let's, let's finish though on, on a positive that uh, in this 
section. Yeah. Uh, what is it that that you know makes you hopeful as we move in a new direction? You know, is it is it yeah. what we're seeing with cannabis? I mean, what what is it that that make that gives you hope? Um, it's really, I mean, it's a combination of things. It's what we're seeing with cannabis. It's what we saw last year during the election. The only things that that passed. Um, with overwhelming bipartisan support were, were legalization bills. I mean, we saw what happened in Oregon. The problem is I think a lot of people see, um, think decriminalization is the answer. Decriminalization ends criminal penalties, right? So you buy a bag of heroin, you're holding it, the cops can't arrest you, and then you go home and you have no fucking idea what's in the bag, so you, you know, die um, of an overdose. The drugs need to be replaced. I mean, definitely no criminal penalties, but um, yeah, so I... I I mean, I feel like people are becoming more aware, like there's definitely a shift in in sentiment. Um, I had a conversation with a friend um, who used to be a cop and um, he's the only cop I've ever gotten along with. And, and we're, we've been very close friends for a long time. And he said something about how like, you know, the, the world that we live in, like who would have thought that I'm thought of, I, I'm, you know, seen it like the former heroin user is the, you know, honest beacon of, you know, honesty and, and, and truth, and everybody hates the police, uh, you know? Um, so the tables have really turned. And I think also with the, um, with the George Floyd, that put a, a very bright spotlight on how racist the drug war is. I mean, you know, I've certainly always known that. You look up any illegal drug, every drug that's illegal in the United States, and there is a racist catalyst that is so fucking clear, um, why the drug is is illegal. Um, so people are aware of that also. I mean, the, the John Ehrlichman interview, he was Nixon's uh, not chief of staff, but something like that. And he says like, of course we lied about the drugs. We were trying to take down, um, you know, anti-war sentiment and, and, and we thought that we would, you know, get, uh, we could arrest all of the blacks and associate them with heroin. It's always some kind of racist stereotype association game. Um, and people are becoming more aware of that. And people are understanding that drugs are a coping mechanism. I mean, the idea that like bad people use, um, bad people are, are, are getting addicted to opioids um, has, has always been crazy to me because it's like, why is it, you know, when it's easier to believe that than people who are in pain use painkillers, like the narrative is, doesn't make any sense. And when anybody like stops and takes a look at it, and really thinks about it, it's like, oh my God, that makes absolutely no sense. You know, I mean, we tell people, oh yes, the heroin is causing all of your pain. Um, I mean, the exact opposite of biological axioms um, are being passed off as, as truths and people are becoming more aware of it. The internet is obviously helping, social media is helping. So, you know, I think it's something like 64% of Americans want the drug war to end. Um, I'm not all that optimistic that I'm going to walk into a drugstore that is like a liquor store in my lifetime. Um, but I, I, I have to be hopeful that it's possible or else I, you know, I would, I would kill myself. Well, I, I, that was positive. Wait, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, I, I, I co-sign all of what you said and I, I appreciate your knowledge on this so much. Uh, but we are running low on time. So before we get to the final questions, one more time, shout out where people can find you online, follow you, uh, and buy the book, of course. Okay. Um, my website is davidposes.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm David the Kick with no spaces or underscores. I'm on Instagram as David underscore the Kick. Although I think if you just type in David Poses um, on any of these platforms, you'll find me. Facebook, I'm david.poses and davidposes.author, although I don't really do much with davidposes.author, but whatever. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, although I can't think of what my name is, but I guess you can just <laughs> look me up. You can, you can buy the book at any bookstore. Split Rock Books, um, which is my local bookstore, has signed copies. You can also just show up at my house and I'll sign your copy. I'll send you a signed <laughs> copy. Um, you can you know, certainly buy it at, on Amazon if you want. I would feel better if you didn't. I really don't care if you buy the book. I hope that you read it. That's what matters. So, you know, steal it or uh, whatever. I'll, I'll send you a copy. Well, next time I'm uh, up your way in New York, I'll swing by and you can you can sign my copy. Um, okay. So, oh, um, I'm sorry. Can, can I just add one more thing? Please. Okay. Um, I, I hate asking for shit, but as a not famous um, author, 
I like Amazon reviews, Goodreads reviews, social media mentions, all of that stuff is so fucking important. Um, and I hate asking because it sounds like, oh, he just wants to sell more books. I, I mean, I'll, I'll send you a book, read it. If you like it, uh, put a thing on anywhere and I'll be your best friend forever. Um, and, and please tell anyone, you know, to, uh, do that too. And, and I can, I can tell you as someone who did leave a good review, uh, David was very kind about it. So yes, please, please do that. Um, so we always finish with the same two questions. The first of which is uh, not just during the pandemic, but what self-care habits work for you? Um, definitely accepting that I, I'm going to be on buprenorphine forever or, you know, if one day I decide I don't need it. That's fine. But coming to terms with that and being able to look at it as no different than glasses. My, I have crappy vision. If I don't wear glasses, it's a problem. Um, I'm in therapy once a week. I play a bunch of um, guitars and banjos and stuff. I'm, I'm kind of terrible at it, but um, that's cool. I listen to lots of different kinds of music. I write. I mean, I had, I had written um, a bunch of uh, novels and short stories before this book, but I have a, a very acute fear of failureitis. So um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't share them with anybody. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, I, I spend time with my kids like that, that my, my, my kids are the single most important thing in, in my life. Um, and I know that sounds like cliche, but it's true. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a, the primary parent, um, you know, and, and that's really my world revolves around them. Love it. And the, the, the final one we always finished with, thank you for all that is we've now spent the last almost 50 minutes hearing why you're amazing. We should be following all you do, but this is your chance to shout out some other people that you follow, whether it's, you know, people on social media or uh, what are you reading, watching, listening to anything like that? Yeah. Um, there's so many amazing people and I, I definitely don't think of myself. I mean, I, I hate talking about this, um, my own stuff. Cause I feel like such a douchebag. Um, Amy Dresner is, I'm, I'm, couldn't be more crazy about her. Um, My Fair Junkie is a book that uh, really, really moved me. I can't relate to any of her story, um, but it was, it was really, I can't recommend that book more highly. Maya Salovitz, um, I've admired and respected her for a very long time. I'm crazy about Johan Hari. Um, I mean, basically any of the people that blurbed my book, blurbed my <laughs> book because I love them and love their books. Um, you know, so, uh, so I, so I asked them for a blurb, um, but I got to be friendly with all of them. And it, it, I mean, they're all great. Um, I don't watch TV, so I couldn't recommend any TV shows. Um, I mean, lately I've been reading, I, I mean, right now I'm, uh, I started night bitch by, um, I can't think of her name that has nothing to do with drugs and, um, nausea by Jean Paul Sartre, which I've probably read a billion times before but i mean that really captures the essence of depression um for me and uh there's no drugs in it um so yeah i, I listen to a ton of music um i, I radiohead okay computer f is very prominently featured in the book and i that's still my favorite i mean you just can't beat them I don't know that you can go more than let's say ten pages without a reference to OK Computer in, in your book. It's uh, yes. It's, well, it once it comes out. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a character in in the book. Um, it totally is. Yeah, <laughs> David, thank you so much for the time. It was really fantastic to finally get a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't ramble. <laughs> hey, y'all! It's me, your host. I'm sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is a fantastic episode of the podcast, but I have to give a quick shout out to my partner, Roadrunner CBD. They have been working with me for a while now, and I just love their products. They have everything from tinctures to muscle gels, and all of them are fantastic. You know, I rub the muscle gel on my legs before I run, and they keep me feeling pretty good, which is saying something. So check out Roadrunner today at their website, www.roadrunnercbd.com slash ref, R-E-F slash C-Y-S. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash C-Y-S. And use the code C-Y-S at checkout to let them know that I sent you and get 10% off. Trust me, you're going to love this. I've sent some of their products to a couple different people and they've all become repeat customers. So check it out today and don't forget to let them know that Choose Your Struggle sent you.
subscribe to my Patreon for behind-the-scenes looks at the podcast, sneak peeks, and bonus data. You'll also get a discount on Choose Your Struggle merch. Find it at patreon.com slash choose your struggle. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. Uh, I, I I said this on the way in, but I just find him so insightful. Um, you know, his 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 Twitter and his Instagram uh, are both two that I I check regularly. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> huge shout out to ML for turning me on to David in the first place, but also. You know, I'll log into Twitter and it'll be like, uh, you know, the, the the first thing I see is is his post because you know there's a bunch of people on my timeline that that are, are big David Poses fans, but also uh, ML is always always liking his stuff and sharing his stuff. So so thank you ML, uh, and thank you to David for for being such an incredible guy and in, in writing probably like I said before my favorite book so far this year on the subject of drug use. Um, and, and, and really just being a force for good in our community. So thank you, David. Now, your card today, we're going to use the Train Your Brain card deck, 100 Techniques to Heal Trauma and Build Resiliency by Dr. Jennifer Sweeten. Thank you, uh, Dr. Sweeten. Here's your card. View from a car. When you are a passenger in a car driving on the highway, everything you see outside your window passes very quickly. By the time you process what you've seen, it's gone into the past and you're seeing new images. Whenever you experience images of distressing memories, imagine viewing these images in quick succession as if you're looking at them from your car window. Remind yourself that as soon as you see these images, they are gone. Imagine driving far away from the window, separating you from these images, making them feel more distant and less distressing. That's a great card. Great point and a great technique. Uh, Actually, right now, Lauren and I are reading a wonderful book together. Uh, we've started. We've decided this is something we want to do more of. Is sort of doing our own um, book club, just the two of us. And one of the points uh, in this book, because it's sort of about self and identity, and and um, you know, embracing uh, uh, sort of you know your whole being. I guess is a good way to put it. Is is this point that we like to give our thoughts uh, more weight than they deserve? And this is something I've talked about before. I've talked about it. On, I just did an interview two weeks ago about this. Uh, as a guy with OCD, this is something I had to learn because, uh, you know, and this could be a whole topic on itself, but one of the things about OCD is that we focus on the compulsions, but the compulsions come from the, the, the obsessions. And so the obsessions are really the more important piece there. And the reason we have uh, these compulsions is that our our brains are giving are these obsessive thoughts, you know, more weight than they deserve. And so a technique or, or just a tip that, that therapists and, and other people uh, smarter on this than, than I am really work with people like me and others who struggle with OCD on is taking the weight away from our thoughts, um, you know, and, and really helping us remember that thoughts are not uh, they're not, they're not our choices. They're not our actions. And so I love this idea of viewing it as you would from a car and, and, and creating distance. It's just, that's a great tip. Now, before I get to your good egg, um, I want to shout out something that I did on, on Instagram. I completely forgot to do this in the intro. I'll probably mention it again on Monday, but uh, huge thank you to everybody buying merch. I bought some because Ryan has been killing it with these designs, guys. I mean, these are awesome. If you haven't checked it out yet, go to the website, jshiftman.com and go to the shop page uh, or just go to the, the link in the show notes. Um, some of them are just so cool. Uh, things I've said on the show, uh, you know, themes and, 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 and um, you know, branding from just choose your struggle as a whole. And y'all are responding. I, I posted this on Instagram. Just such a huge thank you. Every time someone buys something, I get an email. And I love getting those emails. Ryan is delighted that y'all are loving his designs, and you should. I mean, they're, they're incredible. He's done a great job. Uh, so so please keep checking out the merch, and, and more than anything, just thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's very exciting to me when people send me pictures like, hey, I'm wearing this merch, or, or you know, if they just post it and I come across them wearing, you know, my merch, it, it makes me very happy. So uh, check that out. And your good egg for this weekend and in, in the week going forward um, is is sort of twofold. Number one, as I've mentioned before, the, the this season of the show is coming to an end. Uh, we only have a couple weeks left, about a month, uh, and 
you know, that means that there's a, there's a lot of um, more time that will be in my schedule. There's some good stuff coming down down the road. It's going to be very cool. I've got this, uh, the list in front of me of everything that Choose Your Struggle is currently working on is is a little intimidating, but, but I'm very excited about it. Um, so the, the, the twofold of this is, number one, I want to hear from you sort of what good eggs have you appreciated? What, you know, is there anything that I do or, or I've said that's motivated you to do something positive or add add a uh, a moment of, of gratitude or something like that to your schedule? I want to hear that. Um, this is for the end of the season, sort of recollection and all that. But also, you know, I need new ideas. <laughs> and some of you have reached out recently. Huge shout out to, to Zach Rhodes. Uh, on, on LinkedIn to say how much that he loves my Monday morning affirmations, uh, which is cool. I, I like doing those. Um, so, so reach out. That's number one. And then number two is the, the weather is turning uh, beautiful here in Philadelphia. We, we San Juan, just Puerto Rico overall, was so deathly hot that it was like gross. Um, and then we came home and it's like perfect fall weather. So uh, your, your, your good egg really is go outside and enjoy this weather. Uh, you know, we are moving towards a, a an era where the, the, the extremes are going to be the norm. You know, summer hot and winter freezing. So enjoy fall while it still exists. Um, but, but most importantly, as always, be vulnerable, show your empathy, spread your love, and choose your struggle.